Alright everyone, let's call a timeout. This podcast is proudly sponsored by MIPS, the indemnity partner of four out of five healthcare students. It's free to become a student member. For more information regarding MIPS student membership, please visit qr.mips.com.au. I'm Aidan, and I'm really excited to bring you another episode of the Time Out podcast in 2021. Our next guest for season two is plastic and reconstructive surgeon and world-leading burns specialist, Professor Fiona Wood. Professor Wood, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to have you on. Uh, I'm really looking forward to hearing about your story and and learning the lessons you've learned along the way. Firstly, would you like to just introduce yourself a little bit further and tell us a bit more about what you do? Well, thank you very much for thinking about me. Well, I'm... uh... Uh, Professor Fiona Wood. I'm the Director of the Burns Service of Western Australia. I've held that position since 1991, so probably will be pushing me off and getting a new one in soon. Uh, and I predominantly uh, focus from a clinical perspective on burn care uh, and scarring, major scarring and rehabilitation from scarring, as well as major cutaneous skin loss. Uh, and uh, in running parallel with that, I have uh, done a lot of research over the years and I continue to build the research portfolio, uh, trying to always uh, follow the mantra that I set for myself to learn from today to make tomorrow better. And to do that, you have to engage in uh, research. And these days that's very interdisciplinary. So I guess I would call myself uh, a sort of an academic surgeon maybe, or a, clin- a clinician scientist. So I've done research all the way along as well as my clinical practice. Yeah, fascinating. I'm, I'm looking forward to kind of unpacking a lot of those things there. It certainly sounds like you've got enough on your plate probably. With, with balancing all those things, um, just tell us firstly about, you know, how, how do you start your day? Do you, do you have a morning routine? Well, I think, yeah, I do. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm an early riser. I love the mornings. I, am, I suppose that goes with surgery movies. Uh, but I at five o'clock kick in and I'll uh, check the emails of, overnight and uh, have a cup of tea and uh, exercise and then go to the ocean. And so I, even this morning when it was very cold, uh, <laughs> I throw myself around like a demented seal uh, playing in the waves and body surfing and uh, then I uh, hit the day. So I'm a great believer in sort of exercise and uh, fitness. Yeah, I can imagine you're, you're um, certainly ticking a few boxes there as a surgeon, you know, the, the early morning, the exercise, probably the only one that you didn't mention is having coffee. Ah, oh, I, I, uh, I occasionally do. I uh, had uh, uh, a couple of years ago, I was reading a book on sleep uh, one of my kids is an elite athlete and uh, we had we were traveling for competitions in Europe and uh, she had this book on sleep and I realized I'd had caffeine from being a child because, you know, I was brought up in Yorkshire where we had tea, Yorkshire tea, so you could stand your spoon up and it was so strong. And so, oh, I've had caffeine all my life. And and it, it had a special chapter on caffeine and aging, which was kind of a bit raw, <laughs> a bit close to my own. And so I, uh, I went cold turkey and stopped uh, all caffeine uh, and had a stinking headache for about a week. But now I only have a coffee here and there. But, and I, but I, it's interesting. I don't miss it anymore. And I wouldn't get back into that habit. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That it's- is very interesting. Um, you mentioned the book on sleep. Is there anything that you're you're reading to reading or listening to at the moment that you'd recommend for our listeners? Well, that's I, I'm very remiss of me. I can't remember the title of that uh, book. Uh, but from a, a sleep perspective, I think there's a lot of really interesting. There's a guy oh at Oxford. 
oh, his name, first name's Russell, but he writes on circadian rhythm tunes and things. And I think one of the my observations of the young, uh, you know, you youngsters coming through <laughs> and reflecting back on my time is, you know, we we taught you know all this sort of clinical medicine and we uh, we bowl up as. I was a houseman, you know, in 1981, and you guys interns and stuff, and nobody tells you that you're not going to sleep for the next 40 years. Yeah, <laughs> it's like don't put it like that. <laughs> was left off the memo, yeah, uh, and it's like, well, you know, we know that from a sleep hygiene perspective, that you go to bed at the same time, getting up at the same time, and having unbroken sleep is all hunky dory, and that you live long and happy, and you don't get blood pressure, obesity, and all the rest. Well, mm. we. In a bit of a pickle and so trying to understand uh that whole sleep and loss of sleep making up for sleep and training ourselves to un to minimize the impact on the rest of our life i think is something that we really need to take seriously at this uh, as as the research is built around this space and so i think there's a, an awful lot of opportunity to to really interrogate that and say well actually how can we enhance and maintain our performance from a cognitive dexterity perspective by ensuring that uh, we have the best sleep rest that we can and rostering you know there's a lot of science science could be put into rostering rather than the sort of you know licking your finger and putting it in the wind yeah so mm. i think there's that's a word that's a, a phd for someone out there <laughs> yeah exactly no it's a it's a fascinating area I know that we're, you know, chatting to you about surgery today and we're very interested in surgery here at the time out. But if you had to try one profession outside of surgery, what do you think it would be? Whew. It would not be. I can tell you what it would be. Sure. <laughs> it would not be psychiatry. I have an utmost respect <laughs> for what they do, but I just, it would give me nightmares. Uh, I just could not go there. Uh, I think it'd have to be something like interventional radiology or something. I'd have to be doing something. Yeah, you know? yeah. Uh, or interventional cardiology. Oh no, no, I know what it would be. I'm a closet neurologist. <laughs> yeah. I, and I can talk to that later. But I love neurophysiology, and uh, some of our research is very embedded in that space. So to be a neurologist, maybe that would be it. Yeah. Okay. What about anything totally outside of medicine? Is there anything else that's ever taken your fancy? Well, I wanted to be the first woman in space when I was an 11 year old, but some yeah. Russian did that. So that was <laughs> and I wanted to be a, a sprinter, but I wasn't quick enough, uh, a 400 meter sprinter. Uh, mm. And, but then uh, I was actually going to go to uni and do uh, maths and physics. Uh, so and right now, I tell you, I wish I had a better data, angle on data analytics. I wish I <laughs> I had uh, run that parallel, if you like. Yeah, because I think data is our future and understanding you know, the nuance behind machine learning and AI and all these things that are coming down the, the pipe. I would really, yeah, really like to be able to have a, a, a level of understanding to, to be able to drive better rather than rely on a, a sort of third party in a sort of individual. But I guess that goes for a lot of the research I do you know, is, is reliant, uh, you know, one question needs many heads to answer it and relying on different skill sets. But the, what runs under, underpins it all is data analytics. Yeah, so maybe maths wouldn't have been a bad, bad gig. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure there's definitely interplay with a surgical brain and a maths brain as well. Well, you, you've touched on a um, few different aspects of your, your earlier years. Um, you're obviously a, a leading surgeon in Australia and across the world, but your journey, um, as we can tell by your accent, started on the other side of the world. So can you tell us a little bit about uh, your childhood and about growing up in the UK? Yeah, I, I was uh, brought up in Yorkshire. Uh, and uh, mum and dad were both uh, uh, of the generation that left school when they were 13, 14. Uh, and dad went down the coal mine and uh, they were very focused on the four of us, my, myself, and my brothers and sister, uh, getting an education. And the big the mantra was in the house that education gives you the choice to get up in the morning and enjoy what you do. And as a result, we, my, one of my brothers, Professor of Orthopaedics, he's just retired. Uh, my, and my other brother, unfortunately, died 
very young, but he was a criminal defense lawyer. And my sister is a phys ed teacher uh, who went on to be a deputy head in very challenging schools in Leeds and Hull in the north of England. But she now runs a, a very vibrant uh, not-for-profit sporting club with lots of, from an elite uh, world champions down to uh, a really interesting special needs uh, and, and sort of integrating that sort of diversity into uh, uh, mainstream uh, classes in this, uh, it's aerial gymnastics, trampolining and such. And so she runs that. Uh, and so we all kind of took notice, if you like, of what mom and dad were saying, but we're, we're the, the two, the other way forward if, uh, out of that sort of mining village was through sport. And there were two women that were very inspirational to me really early on. One was Dorothy Hyman and the other was Valerie Wilde. Uh, and they were both Olympians. They're both coal miners' daughters and they were both, uh, one went to Mexico, went, went to, uh, and she had a bronze medal, I think, in the women's uh, relay. And then uh, Val went to Tokyo in, uh, that was 64, I think. Uh, and uh, it, they, the fact that these women had got on an aeroplane, left the country and done something they loved was enormously uh, inspirational to me as a young kid. And I was like, I loved running. I just like loved the feel of the wind in my face. And I, my, my, my mom and dad would take me running, training uh, yeah, a few times a week and we'd compete at the weekends in the summer in the, th the equivalent to little athletics at three A's. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, I, I kept doing that. I did that, I ran through university, but not anywhere near as, uh, as well as I would have liked. Uh, so I, I kind of pulled back as I, uh, as I went to university, I stopped being much more competitive at that point. Uh, but it was, it was really to know that that could happen and that could, is I think really powerful. And we often say, if you can see it, you can be it, you know, and having those examples are really powerful. And so, so I, I guess I was brought up to leave Yorkshire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, uh, I went from the state school system into a private school system, which is very unusual when I was 13, because my mother got a job in the school. I was uh, destined to leave school at the end of year 10 because of the way the system was in that part of the world at the time. And uh, they changed the system. My brother, elder brothers went, uh, went to grammar school and they abolished the grammar schools. And so she got a, a job at a Quaker school. So I, I finished my high school education in a Quaker school. And that was quite defining. It was enormous. It was, a, it was, it just changed my life. It was, it was fantastic. <laughs> yeah. And we all walked around a, a, an environment that was built in the 1700s with the sort of stones, floors worn by the feet of time. And it like, we were Harry Potter before Harry Potter. We all wore cloaks. It was co-ed though, the boys didn't wear cloaks. And, uh, and so I got the opportunity to do A-levels, which is like year 12 and to go to university. But I also learned about the whole Quaker ethos and uh, the, the motto of the school was not for oneself, but for others, non sibi said omnibus. And not long before my father died, I was visiting home because mum and dad, uh, and mum still lives on the, by the school. And uh, it's Easter and the, our house is, my like, family home is opposite the school gates and in the school gates in the raw iron is non-sibi non said omnibus. And, he, and my dad looks across, he said, I guess you did that. I guess you learned that here, <laughs> you know. And yeah, I think, wow. as a 13 year old, that's a really defining time in that sort of young mid-teens. And it, it was, it changed me, it changed, it gave me a whole different perspective on what we could do and how you could do it. And, you know, with a level of kindness and consideration and yeah. that's humanitarian aspect. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's really, really fascinating. A great example of, you know, it takes a village to raise a child. It sounds like you really had a lot of influences around you, your, your parents and your siblings and, and the school as well. Um, and I really like that example, not for oneself, but for others, it is 
so applicable in, in medicine, I think as well. Mm. Um, tell us a little bit more about the, the athletics um, pursuits and, and, you know, having, having that Olympic dream. Um, and then maybe if you could talk to, I know you mentioned you enjoyed swimming, but maybe if you could talk to just exercise as kind of a, an outlet for, I know it's a really common thread among surgeons. Um, so yeah, maybe how that interplays with, with the job. Well, I think it is interesting, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> I wasn't good enough, but, <laughs> but uh, athletics taught me how to goal set, how to train, how, how to, yeah, how, if you want to work, if you want something, you work harder. And yeah, you know, I had a, a sort of junior women's success here and there, but it's, so it teaches you good lessons in life. It teaches you how to, how to lose and how to win occasionally, but uh, you know, so there's good lessons in life. Uh, and so I th I've always, I kind of came from that background where uh, you know, the whole idea was, yeah, you've got to be fit for life. My mum is 90. She walks a minimum of two miles every day across the fields in Yorkshire. And if she was most put out when it, the wind, weather was bad during last week, like within, which is not that infrequent in Yorkshire, I'd have to say. Anyway, there's a, a, a park close by where there's paved area, uh, tracks rather than muddy tracks so she can go without the risk of falling. She doesn't, not that she falls, but she just doesn't want to take the risk quite sensibly. And they had to, she had to sign in every time because of this COVID business. <laughs> so, but, but rather than, she said, it makes, puts me off doing it. But I'm going to go because I, you know, so she's been sort of instilled in us all that that's part of what we do. I mean, I actually swim with my sister every morning, you know, and so exercise underpins that fitness for life. And I think you're right that when in a surgical context, a lot of my colleagues uh, are, and that's that will cycle or run, or uh, and certainly my, my uh, eldest daughter. So I have six children. I'm very, very fortunate. Uh, he's just coming up to take her plastic surgery exams. And uh, she was, she did a period of time where she was uh, ultra marathon running and uh, took some time off to race, trail race around Europe and things. But she, <laughs> I, she came to the realization that, yes, yeah, she runs every, most days. Uh, but short, much, much shorter because she hasn't got the time because, uh, you know, training for a 100K race is incompatible with plastic surgery training. You have to be sensible about this. Mm. And so, but, to, it, but it clears your mind and it keeps you sort of fit. And, you know, we are in theatre for long, long periods of time on occasions. You've got to have a level of fitness to maintain your functionality, I think. So I think mm. from that from a surgical perspective, it's a very positive thing to do. You know, the boring things, good sleep when you can get it, good nutrition and hydration and exercise. And on my on a personal level, yeah, of my kids, all six of them have been represented WA in certain sports and two have represented Australia. And we always say that's not because you know, it might be, you know, you'd probably be okay, but we extended the, the school day by taking them, they were training before and after school. So it made the day long because both we were both surgeons. And so we, they couldn't have a short day. <laughs> so there was an element, element of pragmatism in our, uh, are exposing them to lots of sport uh, during the time of their growth, but they all maintain that level of uh, a level of activity into their adult life, which is part of being, you know, as I say, that whole fit for life business. So I don't think there's any uh, substitute. Interestingly, at the moment we're doing. One of the, I've got a PhD student we're co-supervising with sports science, and we're looking at human performance in the operating room. And so we've done some preliminary work where, uh, with a simulation uh, and looking at how the nurses, the surgeons and the anaesthetists respond to different uh, operating temperature environments. Because I'm not sure you're aware, like burn surgery is undertaken in a hot environment, but so mm. that the patients lose their uh, temperature because they know their skin loss is such that they, they get hypothermic very quickly. And so we often operate in a major burn at 32 degrees. And so, so we, we've been uh, doing this work where we swallow capsules that 
they can then uh, read our, core, our true core temperature from infrared sensors. We've got polar monitors on, and then we're doing dexterity and cognitive testing before and after surgery. And now we've gone from the simulation, we've gone into real-time surgery. And what is interesting in some of the results is the fitness level of people actually influences their capacity to operate in this space. Right. And that was obvious in the simulation. And so we're getting much bigger data sets now. And so we've had to go back and actually do uh, activities, questionnaires, et cetera. And we do, we've added a pedometer on as well, and like that kind of thing, so that we understand the, the level of base fitness, uh, because that influences the interpretation of the capacity to, for you to maintain your functionality going forward. So it's very interesting, this personal uh, you know, human factors and how mm. to optimize our performance. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, no, that is a fat, fascinating interplay. Um, in, in terms of your own uh, interest um, and, you know, you mentioned the importance of education as a child, uh, when did the interest in medicine come about and, and how did that kind of grow for you throughout your high school years? Well, I was going, uh, I went into my last year of school at 16 and put in my form to go to Cambridge to do maths and physics and my brother was already at St. Thomas's Hospital Medical School. And he thought that that would be a much better bet than to be a doctor was going to be a much better bet than being a, a, a science nerd in his head. And he had got my, he recruited my mother to the cause and the pair of them wore me down. Uh, and I went to uh, the weekend before I had to finally make my final decision on, on what was the, called the Ocker forms in those days. I went down to London with my two brothers, two older brothers, <laughs> I'd have to say, it was about 1973 or so, 74, and um, London in the 70s, yeah, back tail end of the swinging 60s. It was, it was an amazing weekend, and it was fantastic fun. And you know, the med students, we were crowd was just awesome. And I, I came back thinking, oh, I'd like to be a med student. Uh, so, I'm ashamed to say, I made the decision with the insight of a gnat wanting to be a medicine rather than a doctor. But then, of course, I had the time to think about the whole business before the interviews came up. And, uh, you know, saying that it was great parties probably wasn't going to cut it in my mm. interview. And, uh, and so I, I, the more I thought about it and the more I thought about the space I was in at the Quaker School, the more I realised that, in fact, yeah, my brothers and mum actually knew me better than myself. And this, in fact, was a good fit for me. And that, you know, this whole, I think I still, you know, I think it is an incredible privilege for somebody to give me consent to look after them at their most vulnerable under anaesthetic and, yeah, and, and actually surgically perform whatever the procedure. Uh, and, you know, I think in the future, you know, in a hundred years or something, they'll look back and say, they have these people called surgeons, they cut people, each other up, you know, <laughs> and because it is an extraordinary thing. Mm. Yeah. And maybe at some point we will be able to regenerate ourselves in, you know, like a Luke Skywalker back to tank. Mm -hmm. And so we will, and we'll be able to treat cancer. And so we will be, uh, we'll have, our healing professions will be of different ilk in a hundred or two hundred years time or whatever. But right here, right now, I have still not lost that awe, if you like, of actually that somebody will trust me that much. It's the ultimate trust, really. Mm. And it's, it's unique. There's nothing else like it. There's nothing else like being a surgeon. Mm. Yeah. But that's my take on it. <laughs> yeah. Um, was that something you, you found, of course, you know, you then started med school. Was that something that you found um, drew you, you know, even more into medicine once you had started it and then eventually towards um, surgery itself? Absolutely. I was hooked in the first week. I was telling you, I was, I was right down the rabbit hole, straight up two feet, <laughs> messing around. I, I went into the anatomy dissecting room. I can remember what I was wearing. Yeah, I, it, it was just like, oh my gosh. Uh, and we would uh, just forearm. And in those days, we, uh, we had uh, two years on the same body. 
uh, where people have you know so uh, generously given their bodies to science and so we just uh, we we had maybe four or six of us and we allocated to and uh, we started on the forearm and we would just say uh, every every week uh, mm. for two years and so our anatomy was a bit more rigorous than these days. Yeah, <laughs> uh, but that forearm, I remember, and the gliding of the tendons in the wrist and the hand. And I thought, oh, if a surgeon puts this back together, that's it. I'm in. I am in. And that was it. I didn't look back. And I think what maybe you could say I lacked imagination, or alternatively, I was lucky that I was so focused. But there was nothing going to. I just like this is it. This is my path. And that was the first week, again, with the insight of a gnat. <laughs> but yeah, with no, no experience, no insight, but geez, this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, it's a very kind of interesting discussion with um, being drawn, you know, firstly to medicine and then to surgery. And then, um, you know, even more so kind of the, the senior medical students and junior doctors starting to think then more about specialization and subspecialization. Do you have any particular advice? I mean, it sounds like you really just followed your heart, as cliche as that sounds. Well, it's interesting because then I had to stand back and work it out, yeah? You know, be careful what you wish for. I was one of 12 girls in my year. Hmm. And and it was made clear (laughs) in no uncertain manner that uh, that was not a, a career for a girl. Uh, and so I had to, well, okay, let's work this out. How can I actually do this? And so research became a very obvious space for me to operate in because, uh, and because if I had a CV that was uh, better than my mates who were the boys, then I, I couldn't be overlooked. Mm. I'd be in with a chance. I mean, you get overlooked here and there anyway, but <laughs> it gave me, I, had to, I, I knew I had to get myself ahead. I had to get myself noticed. Yeah. And, so, and at the time at St. Thomas Hospital, there was, a, uh, there was a plastic surgeon who was doing some research in the new microsurgical free flat stuff. Uh, around, uh, and uh, basically, I, I offered I, my services as a, a dissector because I loved the anatomy dissections. And so I would dissect the, the groin and look at the vascular anatomy. I'd inject into the lymphatics, the barium, and then, and then do, uh, dissect out. Then the lymphatics had the barium in, then I'd put a, a dye in the uh, arteries, and then I'd dissect out the whole block because they were talking about transfer vascularized uh, lymphatic transfers fascinatingly they're still talking about that still doing it a bit but uh, it's not it's never really taken off that well but there's better people are better at it now uh, but and that's where I started as a med student doing the dissections at the bottom end of the of the rungs lowest ladder rung on the ladder mm-hmm. and I got to go into theatre with them and I got to know them and I remember standing in the theatre watching my first free flap and that would have been in 1970, gosh, 78, 79, uh, when it, and it was so new. Yeah, mm. surgery was really new. And I was watching uh, and then they were putting uh, the, you know, under the microscope and the whole technology of the microscope being appropriate, the technology of the sutures, the the biochem the sort of material chemistry getting the suture swathed to the needle without so you could put it through a two millimeter vessel without it snagging you know all that technology the anesthetist everything and I was looking I was just in awe mm. and I am I clearly I'm you know, I'm a bit of a like I'm, some of the stuff we're doing now it's just like oh it's amazing uh, and so I I start that's my first exposure from a research perspective was to the plastic and reconstructive surgeons because they were doing so many different innovative things and then a tissue expansion, a whole raft of stuff. And so I got drawn to that specialty because the whole kind of wave around, because uh, I did general surgery, I was a general surgeon first because you had to be in those days, right. uh, specialized. But all the laparoscopic stuff and the innovation around that was was into the future that we, we opened people up. Yeah. <laughs> yeah all the way we had a good look inside <laughs> yeah yeah no minimally invasive yeah so i did uh general surgery vascular surgery uh orthopedic surgery and all the rest so we had to do all different rotations and 
Uh, and so I had general surgical fellowship and then I went into plastic surgery. So I had to go sidestep around and do all the training and then come back into plastics. Uh, so my, my, my sort of kind of interest built and built and built along that journey. And I'd still, like I did, the first publication I did was around um, uh, tissue expansion and an animal model. And I uh, put in, uh, I, I contacted Dow Corning. They don't actually, they came, fell foul of the uh, breast implant uh, litigation. So that right. they don't anymore, but they produced all the breast implants and tissue expanders. And I put in, they built a, a tissue expander for a small rodent model for me. And then I expanded the skin because we were told that the skin would, uh, lose its sensation and its neural integrity. So I did single axon recordings of T11 of a rat and demonstrated that the neural plasticity within the skin construct for the first time. So in fact, the nerves actually grew. They wasn't just, it wasn't stretched. There was actually wow. increased dry weight DNA. You actually increase tissue and you, you regenerate tissue and you regenerate nerves. So the whole idea that this nervous system is immutable uh, and was, uh, was wrong and that it was plastic was very new at the time. And so that was in by 86 in the British Journal of Physiology. And so I was doing those things whilst I was doing my general research training as well. So I never, I kind of left that uh, plastic space. Mm. And, and in terms of, you know, young, you know, a lot of our listeners are kind of on that path at the moment of finding out what they enjoy and, and um, you know, ticking the boxes, I suppose, in terms of looking to training programs and things like that. Um, do you have any particular salient ad advice for that journey? I think it's, I've always felt really lucky that I, I get up in the morning and I enjoy what I do, you know, and mm. I, I'm lucky that I've found in the burn surgery and the burn uh, scarring and all that I found my sort of vocation my niche if you like uh, and I'm still fascinated by it and if you find anything that you're fascinated by chase it down but don't be disheartened if you have to take a side step because you learn stuff from all over the place when I came to Australia I was told a woman with two children couldn't do plastic surgery and mm -hmm. so I did general surgery for another year and then I went back into plastic surgery, but I made relationships. I made, I was, I was mightily <laughs> paid off at the time, but mm -hmm. nothing's ever wasted. Mm. Race every opportunity so that you make sure you don't waste it. Cause you may see something from a different lens that when you go back to what you're passionate about, you see it in a way that maybe has a level of unique and you can add to the mm. body. You know, so, so I think if, you know, if there's a there's a straight path, and very rare, it's very rare for people to take a straight path. This is what mm. I love. I'm going there, but the path more frequently and quite, I think, not unreasonably, is meandering. Yeah. But in those meanderings, there's two ways of being: a bit nonplussed and a bit sort of lackluster about it, or always leave that job with them asking you to do their specialty. Mm. and making sure you learn so that when you get to the other side it it helps enormously because now if i ask somebody to come to a trip to help you know we've got to refer to the endocrines or whatever or cardiac i have a level of understanding of what they're doing <laughs> you know which is yeah. is not a bad idea uh and so and a level of interest because this is my patient i'm treating my patient holistically i want to know what's going on you know mm. so mm. nothing nothing ever wasted uh, and however irritating it may be to feel you've been sideswiped you've just got to pick yourself up dust it off and give it another go and mm -hmm. don't <laughs> well my dad used to say excuse me don't let the bastards grind you down yeah yeah no that's that's great advice i like you know enjoying what you do and um that kind of focused meandering um i, I think that's a really good thing that our listeners can take with them. I, I do want to keep chatting about your um, burn surgery and your specific uh, interest. Um, before we do that, just to take a step back um, to you again in your, in your med school years, um, we spoke a little bit about the academic side. I was just wondering what interests or, or activities you had outside of, of med school. 
the the Camden Palais was a very good nightclub. I do remember. Uh huh. Uh huh. <laughs> uh, uh, I yeah, sport. I played hockey. I played hockey for London universities, combined universities. Uh, and you know the, but and I did a BMed Sci as well in anthropology and neuroanatomy. So I told you I'm in wow. a closet neurologist. Yeah. And I, as a result of that, I went to East Africa and worked on the leaky camp, looking at uh, postcranial fossilization uh, in a, a fossil outcrop of about three million years old. Uh, and wow. so we were faunal, doing a faunal dating. Uh, so we show what, what else was around with these early hominids. So that was cool. Again, cool. stuff that you never, never uh, lose. And so... I could tell you all sorts of things about brains from elephants to worms, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, I was like a kid in the candy shop. You know, I was like, I'm, I'm hung. I've, all, I've always been hungry to learn. I think, you know, medicine is infinite. So there's always going to be something to learn. And I'm, I've been very fortunate that I've been in that space where I'm on the edge of the knowledge so I can actually add to it. You know, so... So I set off, you know, with this, like, I was so keen. It was bordering on pathetic, really, I suppose. But, <laughs> <laughs> but I just wanted to know stuff, you know. Yeah. That's a, that's a great asset to have, that thirst for knowledge. Um, well, um, in, in terms of your um, kind of interest, obviously, we've, we've spoken about burn surgery, plastic surgery and burn sp- surgery specifically. Um, you mentioned a couple of things, you know, the, the innovation and the difference in plastic surgery that really drew you to that specialty. In terms of burn surgery itself, was there something in particular? Was there any kind of, um, you know, early important moments in your life or anything like that that drew you to that subspecialty? Yeah, it was seeing kids uh, with burn scars. When I was, uh, my first year I did, uh, my first house job at Tommy's in surgery. Then I did a medical house job in Yorkshire. And then I came back and I got the SHO, so the RMO job in Great Ormond Street Hospital for Sick Kids. And that was a bit of a coup because it was a surgical job and I was actually operating. Uh, and uh, so I, I was, I sort of landed that pretty early. Uh, and in that job, I saw, there's no burns unit, but we, I saw, like obviously the, the cleft limb pallets I was, I was assisting and things, but, uh, and I was doing the small things, but I did, I saw burns reconstruction, but no acute burns because that's not what they do. And I, I was overwhelmed with these scars. I thought, God, I can't be too better than that. And so I thought, I'm gonna have a, I'll just go and uh, have a look at this. But meanwhile, I had to get my general surgical fellowship so I had to do general surgery, yes, which I did in the University College Hospital and then in uh, Derby in the north and, and Sheffield. And then I came back to Great or- uh, to East Grinstead, Queen Victoria Hospital East Grinstead, where there's acute burns uh, um, service and plastic surgery service. And so that was, and I went, I, saw, I thought, I, I really need to have a look at this and see what can what's it all about why is it so bad why is it so deforming what you know, people can survive more and more severe injuries now but what cost you know and so that's landed me in queen victoria hospital in east grinstead in 1985 which had been established by sir archibald mackendale kiwi who uh, was knighted for his work on uh, air force personnel who had been burnt in the second world war so it's a very traditional place with a lot of history there and a lot of real support for uh, Burns research and, and, and looking at what could be done tomorrow. And that's where I came across them trying to grow skin. And the rest is history, as they say. <laughs> it yes. was like, whoa, the, you know, this sort of laboratory-based tissue expansion techniques that uh, started in Boston in the late 70s. Uh, and so that's what we started fast forward here uh, when I was the first case we did here was when I was a registrar in 1990 when they were able to grow skin they brought back the technology from Boston to Melbourne to the Alfred 
Professor John Masterton, who was running the Victorian Burns Service at the time, and Joanne Padleski, her daughter's a plastic surgeon too now. She was a scientist running the lab. And so our first cases, we sent skin to Melbourne. They grew them into epithelial cell sheets and then back to Perth. And in 93, we had our own lab. We built our own lab, which I worked with Marie Stoner for some years. So, but yeah, it was well, that all yeah, step East Winstead. Yeah, right. Well, certainly you're, um, you know, slightly underplaying the, the, you know, amazing discoveries that have occurred since, um, you know, by saying the rest is history. Um, obviously, one of the things... Um, that you're, you're most well known for is the, the spray on skin. Um, I was just wondering if you could, yeah, talk to a little bit of the kind of scientific aspect of that and how you developed that and how it's still being developed. Yeah, well, we started that uh, at that time and uh, I saw in the first cases that we could do oh, so much I wanted to do with it. And, and, and the time is spe specifically faster, 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 because to grow an epithelial cell sheet still takes three weeks. But what can we do to make that quicker? So Marie and I got together in 93 with a telephone funded lab in the children's hospital. And we, we've got, we looked at everybody, everything that had been written to that point. And we worked out what everybody was doing that made it quicker or slower. And we've added some things of ourselves. And so the first cab off the rent, we, we grew sheets in 10 days. But then uh, based on the, the time to healing is a fundamental uh, driver of scarring and the quicker you heal the less you scar so how can we pull back this time frame and so this the obvious thing was can we actually seed the cells on and use the body as the tissue culture flask and there's a lot of science behind that a lot of work we did and the answer is yes uh, and so we was harvesting cells more and more immature and finding paradoxically they did better yeah, I was a skin grafter, I was a sheep person, but the, the suspension did better, less blistering, integrated better. Again, we did all the research to back that up. And then we saw that uh, we were still using laboratory-based techniques to expand the cell numbers. And then we realized our smaller cases uh, weren't as good as scars as our bigger cases. So could we actually take it into the operating room? And so we developed a point-of-care medical device that harvests your own cells for delivery from a non-injured site for immediate delivery into the wound site. And yeah, you know, when I look at it now, I think how did a young scientist, a young surgeon, build that? Because we did it. We did. We drew it on a piece of paper, wow. and then we. And then we found somebody who could do plastic molding. We found somebody who could do the electronics around the heating elements. That, then we found somebody who could help us with the enzyme. And so we had it all planned, but we had to execute all these different tasks. And then we had to validate all, all the, the, each step of the way to put this medical device together and then get it through TGA and FDA. I mean, it's just like uh, quite mm -hmm. a feat. <laughs> and, and, but now uh, we're working there because that just harvests, what it does, it harvests the cells from the double epidermal junction um, about predominantly basal cell keratinocytes, some papillary dermal fibroblasts and uh, melanocytes. So you get the right kind of color and you can, you can expand one to 80. And so you can, but it's all down to the wound preparation and the wound being the tissue culture flask. And so in a deeper wound, in a, a mid-dermal, uh, superficials heal anyway, but in a mid-dermal, you can change the paradigm. You can do it in a way that you get 80% of our children in pediatric schools have no visible scar now that we've taken to theater. And that's because wow. we salvage the dermis that we'd normally debride and seal it over the surface. But there's 20% there's more complex than in the adults, there's more flame burns. And, and so we're currently now working with uh, uh, groups from Curtin and Wollongong and Sydney in Venture and uh, Queensland. And so we're putting together, we've got a robotic 3D printer printing the bioink uh, with cells at the point of care to try and uh, facilitate the expression of the phenotype so we can regenerate skin in situ. So not just the cells, but the treat, the cues and the framework for the cells to, to proliferate, migrate and hang it and differentiate it. Mm -hmm. So that's a big ask, but that's one of our big programs at the moment. We're funded by uh, MRFF and the Biotech Horizons for that. Yeah, so that's, that's a really exciting project. So yeah. that takes takes me back into the lab and the large animal facility doing all that stuff with the team. And it's, we've got engineers 
uh, cell biologists, the uh, material chemists, so uh, image specialists, lots of people coming to the table to make that work. Yeah, no, that, that's fascinating. I can see that that kind of journey of discovery and curiosity still excites you. Um, and that example is also a great one of collaboration, bringing different fields and different interests together and, and kind of, you know, many minds on one problem, as you mentioned earlier. Um, and it's great to hear decades of research in about three minutes. So that's, that's, that's great. Thank you. Um, one of the probably, I'm guessing, more seminal moments for you um, was in 2002, I believe, just after you kind of launched one of the first prototypes of this um, was, of course, the Bali bombings. And the, the majority of those patients, uh, well, certainly many of them were, were flown to Perth hospitals, um, particularly your own, with, you know, lot, some of them with extremely extensive burns. Tell us about those few days and, and weeks and, and treating all of those patients. How was that experience? Well, I think it's interesting for, the, for me to, to tell this story. I have to start way, way earlier. I arrived, in, you know, from... Uh, uh, the UK and I was a, a registrar on the burns unit and I got a call from Kananara and for those of you who know WA Kananara is a long way north in fact I was there a couple of weeks ago it's nice, very nice and warm but anyway uh, and I waited uh, finished the operating list and I waited and uh, uh, I went to the ward and I said oh, you do have the patient arrived yet and they go no where's he coming from a place called Kananara they go oh they won't be here till tomorrow I think, what yeah, and a lot can happen, you know, a lot can happen to somebody to de define whether they're going to live or, or die or, or infection and all this sort of thing. Oh, my God, what am I, where have I come? <laughs> and so when I started in 1991, I was director of the burn service of WA. That's the job I got uh, as I came off my training. And so I was focused on ensuring that the quality of care across the state should be equivalent. So we started with a burns management program. So we educate, and we still, we've been, that still goes like one of the team, uh, uh, one of the surgeons with a nurse and allied health are going to Kalgoorlie on Tuesday. We go regularly. So every, we have this network system. We have an outreach telehealth system as such that ensures that everybody has an equivalence of care. That's our goal. And so in the 1990s, they were building a Northwest, off the Northwest shelf, they were building uh, a new gas plant, uh, platform and it was the same configuration as Piper Alpha. Piper Alpha is the largest loss of life in the glass pot, uh, on an oil rig anywhere in Aberdeen in the 80s. And so they, Woodside Petroleum contacted us and said, we want to do so disaster plan and disaster exercises around this, this uh, explosion, because there's one thing being in Aberdeen uh, and there's another thing being in Karatha. Um, and so with a 15 bed hospital and uh, so country hospital. And so we, we did a, a piece of work that then extended into work around the Sydney Olympics, uh, responding from as a whole of the country to what, how would we respond as small, very small focused groups, because with limited beds, Concord's the biggest burns unit, uh, and there's North Shore, in, but there's only, Victoria's only got one, one in uh, Adelaide and Brisbane and us. And so how would we surge to meet a capacity if there was a problem around the Olympics? And then uh, from there, with again, back at Woodside, we uh, developed an action and practice plans on how we would, uh, execute such a disaster offshore and onshore and etc and we we ran a real-time exercise called exercise icarus and as a result of that we sent uh, a, a recommendations to the australian health minister's advisory council on how the australian burns community could respond to a disaster uh, and, and we sent that up in july of 2002 in august we got a reply saying they agreed with everything a few bits and pieces here and there and then in October, we did it for real. So I tell you that because what we did was we were trained to do, we thought about it, and we knew how to execute the task. And so we knew people in the, uh, who'd been helping us uh, develop this plan in the military for a perspective of uh, uh, how, what is the logistics of mobilizing a military asset in order to go and retrieve. 
Now, that's not something you'd normally come across. It's like anything. Planning, you know, improves performance. And so we had all those pieces of the jigsaw we had an awareness of. We had an understanding of who takes lead in this, which, which jurisdiction, the, uh, like the police and DFAT and all that sort mm-hmm. of stuff. And so when it came to it on that Saturday, Sunday morning, we were, we were able to respond in a way that not just Perth, but the whole of Australia, with most people came here because we're closest, and some people hub through Darwin, with the Darwin's Triage Centre, there's no Burns unit there, but they've got amazing uh, EDICU teams that were part of the plan. And then the the Burns kind of got spread across the country from there, but Herc came here and then direct from to here. And we had all the systems in place, down to the body systems, to the stores, to the theatre, how we run the theatres, the surgical plans. Yeah, so... As I look, we, uh, we lost three patients, massive, overwhelming injuries, mm. clearly, birds and blast injuries as well. There was a lot mm. of trauma as well. So and 25 people came through and still many of them I still see and, uh, intermittently if they need bits and pieces now. But I thought the window to our world opened and it was very unusual and in doing so, it it changed not what we were doing, but it changed perception. And I've always thought, or you know, when we've I've taught and we've done, all of us have done teaching around how to respond in such a to surge and uh, in such a way that it was what we was trained to do. And if we hadn't gone through that exercise, which was over about four or five years before, then what would have, we would have been anywhere near as impressive to the rest of the world. So I think planning and preparation is absolutely fundamental. And yeah. it was, was that then our privilege to be able to uh, do what we did for those people so unfortunately caught up in all that yeah no it's um certainly a great example of planning i think there's some pretty amazing statistics um behind that time um that that, you know you you might correct but i I believe it was something like you know four theaters 19 surgeons 130 surgical staff like just obviously a massive operation um so yeah planning planning helps a lot um, for, for our kind of medical students and junior doctors, just in terms of the actual burns kind of first aid, um, do you have any kind of quick tips? What, what are the pitfalls, that, the to-dos and to-don'ts in terms of a burn? Well, always take the clothes off. Yeah, it's, it, that will come back and that will always retain the heat on the surface. So remove the clothes and cool the burn. If the skin comes off, it's always going to and you're not doing any damage. So clean, cool running water, 15 to 18 degrees for 20 minutes is most effective within the first hour of burn. Uh, spray, if you've not got a big volume, is helpful as well. Uh, but there's no substitute for that water, that evaporative loss. And uh, if you haven't got you know, uh, the, the volumes, then spray or keep and change in a towel, wet it again, put it back as it warms yeah. up. And it makes a massive difference. It reduces the need for surgery. And there's really good basic science coming out of Queensland, particularly in some New South Wales, the basic science behind this, it changes program cell death pathways. It's not just an energy, straightforward energy transfer. It changes cell behavior from a, from a necrotic to a regenerative. Right, right. So birds first aid does matter. And, uh, and it's also that uh, you're reducing the contamination as well, which helps because you know, infection is the biggest killer still of our burn patients. Right, right. Okay. And definitely no ice, so I'm told. No ice or definitely no ice, no. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Um, there's so much more um, that I want to touch on. Fiona, I'm conscious, uh, conscious of the time, but something I, I really want to chat about You've mentioned a few times um, the importance in your career. Firstly, you know, as a young child of, if you can see it, you can be it um, in terms of those um, female athletes that were your role models. Um, You mentioned now that, you know, your um, daughter's a plastic surgeon and, um, you know, obviously you 
have um, a large family, you're married to a surgeon. Um, I'd really love to hear you talk to the role of, you know, women in surgery, how um, perhaps we're, we're doing better uh, as a surgical profession than, than we have been at the, in the past. And yeah, what, what kind of things can be done to, to break down the stigma and role of, you know, things like if you, you can't have a family and a surgical career. Well, I'm a great believer in, as you've probably gathered in, you know, doing what you want. Yeah. <laughs> Just understand the only that comes with a prerequisite. You've got to be prepared, prepared to work hard enough to achieve it. And there's no substitute for hard work. But I, I sum this up nicely in a story. I, one of my kids was uh, had um, a girlfriend uh, who was at the Gold Coast Med School. And they were over there at the time. And uh, she... Uh, She'd been in a lecture where there'd been two surgeons, a male and a female careers thing. And they'd actually talked about the fact that uh, women in surgery have to be, uh, be very cognizant of the fact that it would impact on their capacity for, to have children. And I've never done this before or since, but I rang up the dean and asked if I could come and give a talk. And he goes, who are you? Who are you again? <laughs> said, oh, I'm just passing through. <laughs> just passing through Brisbane. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going and so I went to the Gold Coast and there was the lecture and I sort of truncate this and they're all in lecture theatre and I go, yeah, how many wants to be a surgeon? That's all the girls and boys, yeah. And I go, well, you have to understand that I'm a surgeon, my husband's a surgeon and we have six children. So unless you are prepared to have six children, I think you should give away the concept you'll never have a surgical career. And of course, <laughs> right? Like, good, good. I'm glad you're laughing at that. I'm glad you're thinking I'm completely nuts and that you don't believe me. But why, when somebody came here and told you that maybe you couldn't have, and you have, you had to modify what your desires would be in order to do surgery, did you believe them? Mm. Make your own path, find your own way, and do what you is right for you. Not everybody's as nuts as me wanting you know, <laughs> all these children. You know, I've been really lucky <laughs> sometimes. Uh, but you know, but it's it's interesting. Why? What makes people believe that they can impose their values on someone else? Mm. If you want to do surgery, and you find yourself in a relationship, and you want to have children, well, hell, do it. We've currently got. In, in, in the plastics team now, as the only plastic surgeon here in WA for 12 years, and now we've got a gold gaggle of girls, uh, women. And in the Burns, uh, uh, the deputy director has got three children. She's female. Uh, then the two full-time consultants, uh, one's got uh, uh, another one with two children, female. Another one, female, four children. Male, four children. Male, four children. That's, that's the burn cohort. Mm. Yeah. So it doesn't matter. And our trainees, we've got three trainees with children, females. And interestingly, all the trainees, except two, male or female, have got kids. So what's the, you know, you just find your own way. Yeah. And if you find, you know, don't, you don't have to listen to everyone. You don't have to listen to me. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> but when I just find it difficult when people are uh, sort of imposing their their values and their energy levels on somebody else. Yeah. It's not a problem. If you want to be a surgeon, you don't have children, fine and dandy, not a problem. But you don't have to constrain yourself. Does that make yeah. sense? Absolutely. It does. Yeah. Live your life and um, yeah, you do you. I think you, yeah. we could probably uh, summarize that. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So is there such thing as, uh, you know, I'm kind of thinking of that phrase, work-life balance. Is that different for everyone? And, and do you just have to work that out along the way? Yeah, and it changes along the way. I used to work, my work-life balance was in 10-week terms. School was holidays, two weeks, 10 weeks, two weeks, all changing, all yeah, changing. Yeah. I found it harder when the kids are gone and growing up and growing and gone because, well, oh, I can work more. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't do this as much. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> take up a hobby uh, <laughs> i'll go ride my bike again uh, uh, but uh, you know it's it's interesting yes so it has it's it's time of life changes it you know the work-life balance where you've got lots of kids that's is the kids that's the balance or the imbalance when the kids grow there's more time for you it's just horses for courses yeah yeah no exactly that's that's fantastic advice um 
Fiona, we've spoken about a lot of your kind of achievements and pursuits over the years, and um, you uh, have been rightly very well acclaimed for a lot of these. And, um, you know, there have been kind of numerous awards um, and which I could list, but I won't. But the, you know, probably the most prominent of those was in uh, 2005, you were Australian of the Year. Um, I was wondering if you could speak to that as a kind of a platform. Um, how, what did that mean to you from a perspective of growing your own research and, and work and, and using that to kind of promote burns and, and medical care more generally? Whoa, yeah, it was interesting. How old would I was? It's, gosh, almost 20 years ago now. How many years? 2005, yeah. I was actually quite young. Mm. Uh, in, and I felt that I was really overwhelmed at the time. I, uh, my eldest was in year 12. I, uh, when I was asked to be Australian of the Year, my first comment was, my goodness, there's so many people that could do this better than me, you know. I was like, whoa, are you sure? You sure want me? And and I went home and I said, I've been asked, let's do this. And what do you reckon? And all the every, all the kids and husbands, yes. Oh, okay then. Uh, and, and so it was, right, well, if I'm going to do this, how am I going to do this? And my message became one that you have to understand the decisions you make for, you, uh, for yourself have ramifications way beyond yourself. The, and the decisions you make, particularly around wellness, education, your health, your fitness, all these, all these decisions you make actually impact on a society. And there has, a bit, there has to be that sort of give and take and that understanding uh, and the, of different points of privilege and, and different opportunities to help and for everything to move forward uh, in a more meaningful way. We have to be, understand what we can contribute. The whole idea is everybody's a little bit more than we all move forward. If everybody's a little bit less, we all move backwards. And that's a message that's a hard sell, and I'm still at it. <laughs> uh, uh, but it led me to link with a lot of good news stories, and there's a lot of good news out there. We have, you know, we see uh, presented, and we accept that presentation of, of bad news in the media, and we soak it all up, and we or we criticize and we read it. But you know, would we be so entertained by good news stories? clearly not so we're culpable all of us and it's not the media's problem that we don't see the full breadth of what the what humanity can do and what is being done in a positive sense so it, it really opened my eyes to the positive and made me an even more rapid optimist than I already was but it was an extraordinary experience and overwhelming, as I've said. Uh, and you know, I, I would leave, get the night flight over east, do a breakfast talk, lunch talk, go to see a visit a couple of schools, nursing home or whatever, <laughs> get back on the plane and because of the time difference, I'd get home for dinner for the kids and then I'd do it a couple of days later. Yeah, and so it, it, it sort of knocked me around a little bit. Mm. Uh, but the whole team was behind it. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. the whole... Uh, sending that positive message and around the whole that we can control you know this this whole thing that we call health and this health system that we live in one that's the best in the world but it's a runaway train and how are we going to stop it from hitting that wall every single one of us uh, every decision we make is a resource decision you know so trying to get that feel in the community and more traction here and there uh, but it, it is, as I say, something that's ongoing. I'm involved in the implementation site committee of the Sustainable Health Review here at the moment, uh, because again, it's in that space. Uh, but you work, uh, you go to med school, you do all these jobs, like I said, focus meandering. I thought I like that when you said that. I thought, oh yeah, I like that. But you've always got kind of an idea of what might happen, more or less, but let, that was a left field. Being Australian, year was left field mm. and yeah and I, I it's an it's you know in my memory box as a sort of little shiny bit in my memory box that year that was extraordinary awesome amazing challenging 
in confronting being in you know seeing indigenous communities in our country that it would just blow your mind and mm. and yeah and wanting to help and to do and to be part of that was just extraordinary yeah it sounds like it, it would have been a pretty fascinating year yeah i didn't do a lot of fundraising for burns i'd have to say <laughs> <laughs> much more general message much more we're all in this together kind of um, which is a bit like now i guess yes yeah exactly very applicable i, I really like that message of optimism and um, yeah, it's not a bad way to, to be, as you say, a, a rabid optimist. Um, so I like that. Um, and that's a, probably a good note to um, kind of lead towards our finish, um, Fiona. It's, it's been great to chat to you today. I'm wondering if you have one piece of advice um, that perhaps you've learned along the way that you can pass on to our, to our many listeners uh, today. It's interesting. I was talking to uh, uh, the kids at the, his hospital, uh, to the team the other day about a, a gentleman called Mr. Baron Hay. Gordon Baron Hay is a pediatric surgeon, big fella. He's unfortunately died now. And he was very kind. And I saw along the way as a youngster, he was my boss for a while, how that kindness was considered weakness here and there. And how that was such a bad move because it was uh, a, one, a mistake many junior surgeons made to their detriment, yeah? Because, and over the years, I've, as I've gone forward, I often reflect about, uh, on him and how that kindness was per permeated yeah? and changed the culture of uh, the, the hospital and the feel of random. And so I would say kindness is, should never be underrated. We need to be kind to each other, not critical of the referral on a Friday afternoon, mm. but try and stand back and actually understand why that's come. And, I, and when you're tired and the phone rings, hi, it's Fiona here. No, no worries. Instead of with your think bubble maybe going, I want to go to sleep. <laughs> but it's not the person at the other end of the phone, to, yeah, that sort of, you know, you hear it all too often, that bit of sniping, bit of, uh, bit of tension, bit of aggravation. And I would say, hang on to, there's kindness in everyone. That means, but in some people it's well and truly buried. Mm -hmm. Find your inner kindness and hang on to it and use it because it will actually stand you in good stead going forward. That's a fantastic piece of advice. I, I will definitely try to take that with me, uh, as I'm sure many of our listeners will. Um, Fiona, thank you so much again. I have thoroughly enjoyed our focused meandering. Uh, it's been very enjoyable. Uh, so, yeah, thank you for your time. And thanks for, for coming on and um, chatting to us at the timeout. Well, thank you very much for thinking of me and good luck to everyone because it is a special journey. Enjoy. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Timeout. Brought to you by Aidan, Ganisht, Chloe and Noreen. We'd love to hear from you if you're enjoying our interviews or have any ideas for the show on Facebook and Twitter at TTO Podcast and on Instagram at TTO Podcast SSSM. Don't forget to subscribe to The Timeout on Spotify or Apple Podcasts as well. Finally, we'd like to thank our sponsors, Medical Indemnity Protection Society and the Department of Surgery at the University of Melbourne for their ongoing support.